The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. Once again, to this episode of the Talking Space Podcast, the first one of just the four of us in 2010. And when I say just the four of us, I mean the amazing panel that's joining us for today's episode. And that includes Gene McCulka. How are you, Gene? Yeah, how's it going, Sawyer? Happy 2010 to you. Thanks, you too, or as some people would say, 2010. Another person joining us is Gina Hurley. Welcome, Gina. Thank you, Sawyer. Good to be here. Glad to have you with us. Happy 2010. And also with us is Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark, and happy 2010. Hi, Sawyer. Hi, everybody, and ready to go. All right, and rip-roaring and ready to go we are. So, let's get right into it with today's first topic. And that is that uh, Charlie Bolden, who happens to be basically the chief at NASA, gave a talk at the American Astronomical Society meeting. And he made two key points at that meeting. The first one is basically that we need to inspire kids about science, and that's what's going to keep getting us into the future. The second big point that he was talking about is how sometimes the people over at the unmanned spaceflight kind of feel like they're getting a little gypped. So that way they're going to get a chance to actually get some money out of this, and at the same time not hurt the manned spaceflight program, which he's saying has come a lot farther as well than he ever could have imagined. So... What do you think about this speech that he made? One of the other points that uh, Administrator Bolden made uh, during the speech, uh, and and I believe this is a direct quote, um, if you had told me that we wouldn't be back to the moon by now, I'd have said you were smoking dope. Those of, and, and Dr. Phil Plate on his blog, uh, Bad Astronomy, basically said, well, yeah, no kidding. Um, and... Uh, uh, I believe uh, Dr. Pamela Gay on her blog, blog the Star, the Star uh, Strider blog, she also said the same thing. Um, but it, somebody wrote, too, um, how come the people that are smoking dope are always right? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, you know, I, I have to agree with them. If, if, if you would have told me that, that we were still trying to... to to grasp and, and get back to the lunar surface after after 20 plus years, I'd have said you were you were probably smoking something too, but uh, here we still are. We're still on the ground. We're still at tra- we've been trapped in in low Earth orbit now for 40 years, and I think that's what uh, Administrator Bolden was trying to say. We've got to stop, you know, just just running around the block, and and this this program now has to go somewhere. And uh, I think that's where Administrator Bolden wants wants to take us. He wants to take us to the moon and to Mars and and, and forward through. And and let's stop, you know, calling running around uh, running around the block exploration. 
because uh, it's not really exploration. It's it's you know we are basically uh, you know we're working hard to to lay that groundwork. Um, but I think forty years is long enough. I agree. Just a note: we do not promote smoking dope, but we do promote being correct. Yeah, I'm trying to find the the, the full quote. The quote here. is quote: If you had told me twenty years ago that we would be back on the moon by now, I'd have said you were smoking dope. That's exactly what he said. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing too is that he was you, you were you were kind of saying this, alluding to this in your introduction, which I do appreciate. Um, the future of the 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 human program is not going to be paid for on the back of uh, of science, which a lot of the science folks really really applauded. Um, but it was, I believe, Dr. Phil Plait on, on again on his Bad Astronomy blog that said. Well, that's great, but you know he's seen he's heard that before. Um, uh, I believe former administrator uh, Michael Griffin has sort of alluded to the same thing, and yet unfortunately the uh, the science uh, part of uh, of NASA was really really cut kind of hard in order to to uh, to fund the uh, the human program. Uh, administrator Bolden is trying to say, hey, you know we got to stop doing that. Both of these programs have merit. And both of these programs should be able to stand on their own, and we've got to stop sacrificing the science to the to the human program. And it is a refreshing view. I'm just wondering if he's going to be able to pull that off. I definitely hope he can. That's for sure. Another point he did make, and um, uh, was uh, trying. We've also got to stop being risk averse. Dr. Pamela Gann, her blog basically reported this. Um, to quote it directly. Uh, we became risk-averse after the Space Shuttle Challenger. That's got to stop, and this is quoting Bolden directly. We've, we've, we're going to drop satellites in the ocean periodically, too. Human mistakes are going to happen. We don't plan, you know, we don't want to plan for this. We want to work to avoid it, but we can't be afraid. Uh, we need to take, take risks to move forward, and he's absolutely correct. It's for some reason or other, we've kind of, you know, we kind of think that well, spaceflight in general has got to be a thousand percent safe. Gang, it is never going to be a thousand percent safe. Getting into your car isn't a thousand percent safe. Walking out your door isn't a thousand percent safe. You want to go ahead and think of all the precautions that you're going to, you know, have to take when you're out there in the cold, cool world. But hey, you know, to to quote another line, you know, if it, you know. If, you just can't take the little bloody nose. You're going to have to, you know, crawl under your bed. Um, it's just not, it's not safe out here. But it, you know, but you know, it, it's it, it. You have to think about what may happen to you out there, and and try to avoid it. But you, we've got to start thinking along the lines. We got to stop thinking, start thinking boldly, and not withdraw back. And I'm I'm glad somebody finally said it. That's a good point, Gene. And I think too that uh, the things that we've done a hundred times, we should be able to do better than the thing that we're doing the first time. There'll be more risk on that first shot than there will be on the hundredth or two hundredth or three hundredth repetition of it. And so, you know, let's accept the the first time risk, the first ten times risk as being higher, and just you know look to do things as best we can but not be risk adverse like you said exactly practice makes perfect mark and and the more we 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 do it the more we learn about our environment i mean you know, look look at what we did with apollo 
we built on on the successes of each flight and not that it got easier it didn't by any stretch of the imagination but we were able to take better chances i mean apollo 11 only stayed on the moon for a few hours how long did apollo 17 stay there you know so exactly so um you know, we, we were getting better and better at it and trying to push and push the limits of our machines further, and we still have to do that. But uh, I think uh, Administrator Bolden was uh, was was right on there, and uh, I hope uh, it, everything gets taken to heart. A little scary to me is he says he still really is unsure of the president's decision. I walked away thinking in December that the meeting he had with the president of the White House was a positive one, and I'm sure it was positive, but was hoping maybe it was positive because he could kind of read the president in terms of what he's thinking and what his decision will inevitably be, if not. Yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to read those tea leaves, Gina. I'm not exactly too sure what's going to happen in February. I get, I get the feeling, and I may be completely and totally wrong on this, but I'm getting the feeling that there's going to be some announcement at the State of the Union address. If it is, I have a feeling that that would be a pretty good venue to make that policy announcement, and uh, and it may either A, be a very good Kennedy-esque speech, or it may be something else. I agree completely, because, again, like you were mentioning after Challenger, Pamela Gay said that it's getting, you know, a little more safe in a way. They're trying to put all the emphasis on making sure it's safe and not just that it works in general. I mean, you're going to have the occasional flaw, the occasional malfunction, but... Again, we need to keep moving on. Just like after Challenger, it might have taken a couple of years, but we got back into it. Again, it might not have been as many flights or anything like that, but we got back into the process of it. I think we need to look past that risk management idea and look to the future of what we can end up doing. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, we've got to stop looking, you know, because, you know, you make a, you get told a few times that, you know, you, you've got this X, Y, and Z, you start getting really, really timid and start looking at your feet and wondering what the heck are we doing here. I mean, grant you, the shuttle intrinsically is not... I believe the the latest statistics is you've got a 1 in 76 chance of something really, really dumb happening, or um, as uh, those in the industry are are, uh, apt to say, of having a bad day. And indeed, you want to go ahead and avoid that bad day, but you know, it, eventually it's going to happen. And the idea is, is, again, you think of the worst case scenario and try not, and just try not to let it happen. Well, I think this is a pretty good lead-in then to our next topic, which is going to be talking about the space shuttles. First, I'd say, though, we should talk about the upcoming mission, which is currently scheduled for February 7th. The next minute, it may be different, but as of right now, STS-130 aboard Space Shuttle Endeavor, OV-105, is scheduled for February 7th, but... There's a little bit of a problem. The thing that is going to be used to connect the Tranquility node, or Node 3, which is going up in this mission, are some ammonia wires. And these ammonia wires, they've been doing some tests on them. True, the tests are on limits that are above what they will experience in space, but at the same time, they're bursting. So you're getting some bursting pipes here, and that's the last thing you need in space. We hoping that February 7th is the actual launch date of 1.30, or are we thinking that... Again, like we were just talking about, they may do the risk management safety way and pull it back. Well, I believe um, the uh, mission management team has got two options. Uh, one is to roll Endeavor back, obviously, and deal with the, uh, the ammonia lines in Node 3. The other one 
is to go ahead and launch Endeavor, um, but do a limited EVA run. I believe they're they're talking about eliminating two of the EVA, two of the three EVAs. I'm sorry, and just running one of them. Um, the idea too is how productive is that going to be? And with the limited limited amount of flights that we have left, um, can you bake in any more into the you know into the schedule? Well, they said that they have until the end of the month when they're actually due at the Cape to be uh, all set for launch, if I remember correctly. The next meeting that they have is scheduled for Tuesday, January 12th. Not sure what exactly is going to go on. That's just a scheduled meeting, and they highly doubt that they'll make an announcement yet. But I'm just hoping that it is able to launch on schedule and not have the entire... Uh, lineup get messed up and then have to reorder the shuttles and figure out when they're actually going to get this up there. Yeah, the, I think the option is to roll, one of the options is to roll Endeavor back and then uh, put SDS-131 out there, and uh, which I think would be nec- the next flight in the series, and uh, uh, launch that ahead. We'll have to see uh, what, the, what the big decision is on that. Um, I think, regardless, they're going to do what, what's best for the program, and they're going to do what's best for the remaining flights. And you know, can you still get the the bang out of out of your buck with a a limited EVA schedule on one thirty and launch this thing? So, you know, again, we'll stay tuned. Also, one thing I am going to say though is that NASA, you're listening, and that's anyone in the agency that has any say in SCS one thirty. If you're listening. Make it launch on time. I am scheduled to go down and see the launch on February 7th. Please, launch on the 7th. <laughs> oh, boy. That might be a good good lead in there, Sawyer, so to the next one there about the increased launch rate. Unfortunately, I think you are correct on that one. <laughs> Before we get a little too angry here, let's move on to an article from Florida Today. And inside this article, they were basically saying straight out, NASA keeps up the way they're going. They will not complete all shuttle missions by December of this year. They're saying is that the rate has dramatically slowed down and that it is at the lowest it has ever been in terms of the amount of flights that you're getting per year. After Challenger, you were only having about 5.1, and remember that was after a pretty large incident or accident. Moving along now, you're looking at 2.7 flights per year, and there's another 5 scheduled for 2010. So let's go around the table and ask every person, do you think NASA will launch all of their shuttle missions by December of 2010? Well, I'll put it to you this way. SGS-127 had the darndest time getting off the pad, and that was due to uh, weather conditions over at, at, at Cape Canaveral. I mean, you cannot, you know, the old saying is you can't mess with Mother Nature, and um, she will mess with your head, and uh, she sure did for SGS-127. I think there were, what, six launch attempts before uh, that particular flight got off the ground, if somebody could refresh my memory. I think it was on the 6th that finally went off. Yeah, and um, so do I think they're going to get all of them in by 2010? Based on, they're going to do what, they're going to rule on, on, on the side of safety on each particular launch right now. And I 
knowing what I've seen, what I've seen, and so on, they may not. Um, but that necessarily isn't isn't a bad thing. If we have to go into 2011 with this, then so be it. They're going to do what's good for the program, and they're going to they're they're going to do what's good for 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 each one of these crews. And I I think they're going to err on the side of caution, especially with the program winding down. So, uh, do I think they're going to get all of them off? Maybe not. But again, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Just to let everybody know out there, the launches that are scheduled for 2010 is Endeavor on February 7th, then Discovery March 18th, followed by Atlantis on May 14th. Again, these dates are all tentative. July 29th is Endeavor's final flight, and September 16th, the final flight of the program goes to Discovery. With the possibility of 135 kind of sort of sitting over there, you know, that's Spectre, which would be the shuttle Atlantis. Again, if they can actually get these missions off on time before they even consider getting an extra one in there. Mark, what do you think? You think that they're going to get all of them on time or not? I'm kind of pessimistic, but it depends on how urgent the need is, you know, to put Node 3 up there as planned with with this uh, coolant line modification. Uh, if they got a way to, to go ahead and launch and maybe uh, fix some problems later, I would say they'll be on schedule and they'll they'll hit their milestones for the next few launches. Uh, if it is essential that it be taken care of and corrected now, then I think there's going to be slips. So that's an I don't know, I guess. <laughs> Gina, what's your prediction? They will or will not get them all off on time? I'd say the law averages do. Um, I think one, weather... Uh, two, they've already slipped behind. Three, this problem has come up with um, SDS-130. I say that flight gets delayed by a little bit, and it's going to push the whole schedule back. I'd say likely no. They're not going to get them all off by September 2010. All right. Now, actually, in this article, by the way, in Florida Today, it talks about two main causes of delays and what they think will be the difference of it going off or not. One, we've mentioned both. One, Mother Nature. Two, the shuttle system's performance, such as what's going on right now with the cooling lines for the Tranquility node. But me being an optimist, I'm going to say no, they're not going to get them all out. Yes, I know I said I'm an optimist, and I also said no, they're not going to. But my thought process on this is that it's all about the safety with NASA, which is a good thing when you have humans on board as well. But at the same time, they also want to make sure everything is working in proper order. And I don't think it's going to slip behind that far, but I think the schedule that they have of going every two months and expecting it to go perfectly is a little too optimistic. Yeah, to, uh, just to add something here, and this is a quote, uh, I believe it's also in the Florida Today article, uh, that uh, Bill Gerstenmeier had basically said, the Associate Administrator for Space Operations, NASA, quote, we've been executing very, very well and we just need to keep up that same pace and don't assume it's easy. As soon as we start getting complacent and we think things are going well, that's when we're going to get into trouble. And he's right. I mean, you know, you, you've got to go ahead, keep going, keep chugging along, but um, don't forget there are things out there that are going to bite you. And that, I think, is going to be the, uh, the big problem right now. There's always going to be that one, one item that's going to bite you. And... Uh, 
you've just got to make sure that uh, uh, you're able to um, to deal with that. Right, because one more thing, I apologize, I keep adding one more thing, but with the Florida Today article, again, one thing they're mentioning is one more factor that I forgot to realize is two things. Number one, the location of the ISS and when it can have enough power actually to support a dock shuttle, so timing. And number two is that NASA is not the only manned space program that's sending people into space in the International Space Station. There's also Russia. And because of the Russian crew rotations, uh, right now it's looking at about a 40% blackout dates for launches in 2010. So throughout the year 2010, only about 60% of the days in the year can they actually even attempt to launch a shuttle without having to worry about another agency. Yeah, good point. I mean, we're not the only kids on the block, and uh, uh, just as well with that, too, because <laughs> soon Russia's going to be the only kids on the block. All right, and we want to know your opinion, too. You're also part of this roundtable discussion out there. And yes, we mean you listening. So, what do you think? Do you think that NASA is going to be able to get off their shuttle schedule on time, or do you think it's going to go into 2011? Send us your thoughts and your reasons. Send it to TalkingSpaceOnline at gmail.com, which is our email address, and we may even mention your comment on the show. Also, on top of that email, if you have a response, send it to us on Twitter. Our Twitter name is at TalkingSpace. All right, moving on along now to our next topic is that there's a birthday that we need to celebrate, and that is the birthday of Spirit, the Mars rover that landed on Mars seven years ago. The only thing is, it's still stuck on top of a rock right now on Mars, and uh, its solar panels are a little dusty, which means it may not get enough light and enough energy as Martian winter approaches. So what do we think for our Mars exploration rover as it approaches year 7? Is it stuck on the planet, or do you think that uh, maybe it'll get trucking along again? Physically, like that, it's toe stuck. So... I, I'm not sure any amount of solar energy is going to bring that one back. It's also the angle that it's on right now, I believe, that the location that it is, they're trying to move it, if nothing else, so that it can uh, be closer to the sunlight, but they're having difficulty getting enough energy because of the angle that it's on, if I'm correct. If it lies dormant too long through the Martian winter, um, can they not restart it when um, sunlight's more prolific? Well, I'd imagine they're still going to try to get it out even during the Martian winter as long as they have enough sunlight. But otherwise, I'm not sure. Because I know Phoenix, since it can't be moved around uh, and its uh, solar panels got covered up, I don't think they were able to wake it up. But uh, Spirit, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think basically the poor thing's done. Um, if I don't know if they're going to be able to, able to restart it or not there, Gina. I'm not exactly sure. I know that if uh, the batteries are drained, they're drained. And if um, there's, it's, it's like trying to restart a, uh, um, if you, you, you've dealt with a, 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 a turn crank battery, um, even if, if, uh, if, even if you've gone, gone ahead and you've got a turn crank battery and you keep on trying to crank it and crank it and crank it, once the battery is dead, it's dead. It's not going to come back. And I think Spirit may be in the same shape. I don't know if she's actually going to come back or not if you, you try to go ahead and, and uh, even with, with the uh, the sun hitting those solar panels after a while. I think, it, you know, once the batteries are gone, they're gone. I'm kind of optimistic, though, Gene. I think that they'll uh, 
put it in a, uh, a state for minimum power use, whatever's appropriate for what they can get from the solar cells. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll keep it in standby mode if necessary. And um, look at it this way. Even if it doesn't physically move again, they've, they could still have a uh, great stationary observation platform like every other satellite that hit Mars until Spirit and Opportunity. Well, it's just it. I mean, I mean, it does have, I mean, it has been doing some good science as it's been in that area. I believe it, it, it's discovered another uh, area where, where ice once existed and so on. I mean, and that's a good point, Mark, that it, indeed it, it is still doing some productive science, even though it's kind of stuck right now. Um, but uh, whether or whether or not um, it's going to see another birthday, I'm not sure. So we'll just have to uh, wait and see what uh, what spirit uh, what spirit's future is going to be. I know it's it's had its own issues too. I mean, it, it's suffered from a case of amnesia a few times, and they're gonna. I know they're gonna try to tilt the rover. You know, to 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 talk to uh, your, your what you're saying, Mark. I know they're gonna try to tilt the rover to the north where it can get more sunshine to keep to keep it running, so you can continue to do science. You know exactly where it's stuck, but. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, dust eventually is going to collect on those uh, those solar panels, and uh, I think that's that's really going to be the uh, that'll be the end of the road right there. I agree. I hope it makes it to another birthday, though. But at this point, it's gone much longer than it was supposed to. This ninety day mission has gone seven years already. So I mean, that's a start. And to think the only thing that's stopping it is that it got stuck on a rock. But I mean, it's not only had the problem with the amnesia and the flash memory, but it's also have uh, had its wheel issues as well. Uh, one of its wheels isn't working, and yet while it was stuck in a ditch, it magically started. And of course, as they were trying to use it now that it's working again to get it out of the little uh, situation it got stuck in, both wheels that they were having issues with stopped working. So it's a fidgety little rover there. Yeah, and and again, uh, sorry, it's a good point. I mean, this this mission was only supposed to last ninety days, and considering what's been going on, we're we've gotten our bang for our buck out of both of these these particular machines, out of both Spirit and Opportunity, and uh, there is <laughs> there's no reason to go ahead and hang your head down um, after this. I mean, the the darn thing is has proven its metal, and and we've really gotten our money's worth out of it. All right, and the last topic that we'll be talking about today is, while we're talking about planets, there was a telescope that was just launched into space about six weeks ago called Kepler, and its goal was to uh, detect some exoplanets out there. Well, in a matter of six weeks, it's already succeeded. They've just announced that it has discovered five new exoplanets. Now, some of them don't even fit into the category of what we really know as planets. Some of them may be from, as they believe, ones that are just being created and are very brand new, that are also very hot, although unfortunately none of them seem to be just like Earth. A lot of them, again, are larger than Jupiter. I would say that's pretty good for Kepler to find five new exoplanets in six weeks. Yeah, we're definitely, you know, that's another thing, thing too. We're, we're probably going to get our money's worth out of Kepler, that's for sure. I believe the... Uh, 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 the the term hot companions was uh, quoted by uh, NASA's Jason Jason Rowe who had found the things, and they're thinking that the, these are actually protoplanets. That these are they're actually looking at planets that uh, in the in, in the 
in the throes of formation. So it's going to be really, really interesting to see what what uh, uh, more we can we can find out about that. But again, Kepler is is really, really proving that uh, this is this is going to be quite an exciting mission. And it, I mean, it hit a home run right out of right out of the park. So it, this is going to be a, a fun deal to uh, to look at. I think so, and maybe in the future, one of its goals is to hopefully find an exoplanet with water or that may have possibility of life or that's different than we've ever known. Uh, hopefully it'll find something like that, which is almost the goal of what uh, Hubble seemed to be, and so far Hubble's been amazing, and maybe Kepler will do the same thing, except instead of galaxies, planets. Yeah, I mean, in in six we- in just just the six weeks, it's, it's basically bound... You know, five worlds, um, which have gotten people very, very interesting. Um, there's hundreds of candidates. You know, well, the whole article said that there was like hundreds of candidates out there that uh, that need confirmation out there, and and there are, you know, they're much. One of one of the candidates they're looking at, I believe, that they said is heck of a lot larger than Earth, and had uh, the density of. Uh, I think it was characterized as the density of styrofoam. So you know, again, this is going to be going to be really, really fun to to unravel, you know, as far as mysteries are concerned. And I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what uh, what what they find, uh, what Kepler finds next. The one you're talking about, it's called Kepler Seven B. I think the value in Kepler may be beyond the nuts and bolts of the discovery, but when people begin to realize that you can fit a thousand Earths into Jupiter. And these planets are many, many more times the size of Jupiter. People may begin to think, wow, the universe is just so massive. What else is out there? And it may just provide some good uh, support for NASA in general, just, you know, getting the public interested again in space exploration. What is beyond low Earth orbit? Not that we'll ever see it in our lifetime, a, a way to travel to these worlds, but, you know, every, uh, every success is one step further in that direction. Yeah, Gina, that's a good point. Um, and it, it, Kepler is going to be showing us again to think big, and to to really consider what's really really out there, and and to make us want to go ahead and, and learn more about about the universe around us. I think, and again, to try not to be timid, to really really try to reach forward, and and that's that's what we're trying to do. We're also, I guess, trying to answer the question: Is you know, is there anybody out there? You know looking back at a small star that basically is our sun and just for a moment entertaining an absurd notion. Um, so maybe Kepler will help us answer those questions. I mean, as early as, shoot, 19, you know, in, in my lifetime, 1980, uh, people are speculating, well, you know, we know that there's got to be, you know, planets around other stars. Now we're finally, you know, we're, we're the first generation to really, really have the answer to that question unequivocally. Yes, the answer is yes. So now which one of those planets may harbor life? Well, that's something else we need to also take a look at. So who knows? We'll see. It's a four to six year mission. So hopefully it'll find something. And just for anybody that's probably going out there saying to themselves that we're wrong about the six weeks, it is correct of what you're thinking, that it was actually launched on March 6th of 2009, but from its six weeks of observing that it's done so far. Which, by the way, I find really interesting is exactly how they do it, is that the only way it can detect these planets is that it takes a look at a parent star, and what it'll see is it will see something that's actually 
orbiting it, but not the actual object, the shadow that it reflects on that star. And I find it's amazing how it'll take that shadow and then it'll say, oh, wait, that's an exoplanet. So from watching the transit of one of these planets go across the star, how can it tell that the consistency of one of the planets is like styrofoam? That, I'm not sure. I don't even know if uh, Galileo was able to do that when he was looking at uh, Jupiter and he saw that it had moons, which was basically how we're looking at other planets now is we're going back to Galileo's days. He took a look at Jupiter through his telescope and saw these little shadows on it and saw what he saw were the moons. This yep. case, I don't know how they can figure out the density unless it has uh, specific machines built into it and detectors. Otherwise, I'm not sure. Although that is a very good question. Well, if anybody out there knows the answer to that question, please send us an email. We'd love to know. TalkingSpaceOnline at gmail.com. Actually, sorry, we do have one more little story here, if you recall. The uh, the patches that were, you know, sort of thrown in together, that I believe NASA had asked that uh, a bunch of folks go ahead and um, design a what will eventually become a commemorative insignia for, for the shuttle program. And uh, uh, there were about maybe, I forget, about 35 entrants, including our own Jen Shear. Uh, who uh, submitted one? Who submitted one? Um, they were 15. They narrowed that list down to 15. Unfortunately, um, Jen did not make the cut, but there are 15 intriguing patches out there. And um, uh, I have a favorite, but um, others may have their own opinions. So we'll find out uh, what they're going to select. Um, but I was just wondering if any of the the panel here had a, have taken a look at that and have a favorite. I have about five, so it's going to be hard to vote. And voting is open January 11th to January 29th. All right. And yeah. also, just so you know, uh, this was a contest that was open to NASA employees only. And right. there were 85 that were submitted, including Jen Shears, which unfortunately didn't make it into the final 15. And I definitely have two or three here that I'm looking at them right now. Actually, you can take a look at them if you go to collectspace.com. And there are some really tough choices in here, but there's a few that I definitely have my favorites. Because the one interesting thing is some people included five shuttles, some people included six. So there were a couple of people in there that counted Enterprise and some others didn't. Another interesting thing that we were mentioning before we started recording was that some of them say 1981, which was the launch of Columbia, while some say 1976 was the first testing of Enterprise. So I don't know if that's going to play any effect here in the voting. Yeah, I believe the um, uh, you're right about the uh, the amount of uh, entries. I think there were about 85 and uh, the they had to narrow it down to 15 and it was a panel of folks over at the Johnson Space Flight Center that uh, selected them. I think uh, John Shannon and uh, Leroy Kane were also members of that panel. Uh, I think that was reported by Collect Space, and uh, I, it was probably a really, really tough decision to go through 80, all maybe all 85 of these and try to try to select them on merit. And uh, uh, I didn't envy their their uh, <laughs> their their task on this one because there were really, really a lot of a lot of good entries um, uh, that were submitted by uh, by folks internally in NASA, and. Um, it uh, you know some very very creative minds out there. I have about I have one favorite out there. Actually, I've got two favorites out there, but uh, we'll see how well they do. 
Of course, the one thing, though, just like the No 3 naming contest, even though the People's Choice vote, the judges still actually decide who the winner is, so it's all up to NASA for the final say. Although what they are reporting, according to CollectSpace.com, is that if the People's Choice winner is different from the judge's favorite, it will be a framed certificate, while the other one actually gets, the real one gets to be flown on board STS-132, which is the final flight of Atlantis. Those darn contest rules, right? <laughs> and just to, to reiterate, too, we're not talking about the mission, the actual mission patch here. We're talking about a commemorative insignia for uh, for the final final flight. The actual mission patch is probably still going to be designed by that crew. Correct. By the way, you want to know who drew all of them? Well, too bad. You can't, because they did that on purpose. They excluded the names from all of them, so that way there's no bias. That yeah, was probably a smart thing. With that, I'd say we're just about ready to wrap this up. A couple of notes, though, before we go. First off, all of us would like to send our best to former shuttle astronaut Gordon Fullerton, who unfortunately suffered a stroke at the end of 2009 and is currently in the hospital. And we wish him the best and his family as well and a speedy recovery. Also, there's a new website out there for young astronomers. So be sure to actually get a chance to check that out. And that website is ya.astroleague.org. And again, a congratulations to uh, uh, shuttle astronaut John Grunsfeld, who was on the STS-125 mission, who uh, played a, a key role in the, in the Hubble repair. Uh, he has got a new job. Um, he was given uh, the uh, job of uh, deputy director of the uh, Space Telescope Institute. Um, I believe he's uh, replacing a gentleman by the name Michael Hauser there. And uh, this was according to a uh, January 4th uh, NASA news release. So, again, congratulations to uh, former astronaut John Grunsfeld. I'm sure uh, you know, it was, Hubble was in good hands with, with them when they were on orbit, and now uh, – they're going to make sure that it's he's going to make sure it's still in good hands. So, again, congratulations, Joan. Indeed, congratulations and all the best in your new job. And with that, I'd say congratulations to us because we actually made it through this episode. So, once again, thank you, everybody, for being here. Gene McCulka, thank you very much. Always a pleasure, Sora. Thank you. Gina Hurley, thank you as well. Absolutely my pleasure, Sawyer. Thanks. Not a problem. And Mark Ratterman, thanks again. Thanks, everybody. Enjoyed it and always learn something every time. You're not kidding. And at this point, we would also like to say a thank you to our listeners here who are joining us once again for our second season. And those of you that are just joining us for the first time, as always, we hope you enjoyed the show. Now, something very special we would like to say is a thank you to everybody for pushing us now over 1,000 subscribers. And that's not just listeners, that's only people that constantly subscribe to our show every week. So thank you, and please, please keep coming back, because the more people we have listening, the better we can be at spreading the word of space. So be sure if you have any comments, you can send them once again to our email, TalkingSpaceOnline at gmail.com, or to our Twitter account, twitter.com slash TalkingSpace. So once again, thank you, and as always, have a great day day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.